this afternoon when we finished the inquiry session and a few people were giving some report of their experience, a couple people talked about how it was somewhat unusual to be talking about profound experiences in the way that they were in the inquiry and that they had touched some very deep places that they haven't spoken about before. And the response to that for one or two was, this is something I've never done and it feels quite uncomfortable and I am concerned about what other people might think of what I say. And in the past, in the family structure, there might have been some sense of uh, being humiliated or maybe being out of favor in speaking about our truth <coughs> and what really mattered to us. And yet there's such a kind of revelation that can occur as well as we actually speak out loud what we know to be true and to have that witnessed by another person without falling into concern that, oh, I'm making myself special or they're going to think I'm arrogant or they're going to judge me in some way, but to be able really to sit in our seat and be able to speak out loud to another person what we know at the deepest level of our truth. This is a form of intimacy that we're not used to. I mean, one is that we rarely have people in our lives that we can share this level of understanding with, somebody who would actually understand and be able to share and celebrate the insights that we are having. And even so, there is just very rarely the encouragement or the invitation or even the awareness that that might be useful. I was telling Catherine, actually, during our inquiry, we do our inquiry up here together, too, while you're doing it over there. And I was telling her that in India, when I was with my teacher, Punjaji, that he always encouraged us. He always invited us to speak what you know. Tell me. Tell me what you understand. And he wanted us to do that so that the, the words themselves would reinforce that experience that we were having, the experience that we knew. And he wanted us to celebrate it to celebrate, and he would laugh with us, and he, we'd walk in the streets, and we would, he'd really encourage the, that expression of celebration and freedom and joy and delight that comes when we really feel into our liberating insights and the places that we do feel happy and we feel joyful and we feel the love or we feel good, to celebrate that. This, this uh, uh, refers a little bit to what I was speaking to this morning, too, and the question about encouraging some of those positive experiences and how that fits into the practice. Because at some level, 
And I think through the process of talking with another, we are encouraging the celebration. Of course, it's not always what we get in touch with. There are also some difficult places and some uh, contracted places, and we're also bringing understanding to that. But many times through the dialogue, people start to touch something as they enter into the intimacy and begin to trust the intimacy between myself and another person, we start to touch something that we may not have experienced before, and we want to celebrate that. Somebody said to me this morning in one of the interviews, my heart really opened yesterday, and I feel this love for everyone. I haven't felt that before. I felt this expansive love in a way that not one person was special, an unequaled undivided love for all people, all beings. And how, when do we have an opportunity to tell somebody that? My heart opened and I feel love for all beings. I wonder if there's a way that sometimes most people, or many people might think, God, that guy's a little crazy, you know. Or, you know, particularly, you know, in India, when you go around celebrating and, you know, dancing in the streets and, you know, kind of yelling out how happy you are and play, it's sort of normal. <laughs> it's kind of expected. You know, it's more of the crazy wisdom tradition there in India. But in the Western cultures, you don't see that so much in terms of, you know, ordinary people really celebrating their, their freedom, their, their understanding, their deepest knowledge, and expressing that, that joy and that delight. So some of that came up today, you know, just the how wonderful that was. And to, to come into the experience today, exploring trust and what it feels like to trust what we trust. And really starting to go into that and feeling that at a very deep level, a basic level of the being, and really liking that, how important this was for some people they expressed. <coughs> Not only to feel it, but to name it, to acknowledge it, to share it with the whole group. This is important to me. And so in this way, we really are drawing on the support of the Sangha. We're drawing on the support of like-minded people who do understand, who can share this journey with us. This is one of the positive aspects that comes about through the inquiry and, and sitting and meeting with a person in this very intimate way. This is a field of intimacy that we are creating. And in that intimacy, it's, it's very unfamiliar for most of us. It's unfamiliar for me when I do this in my uh, group where I do this kind of work. And there's a learning, there's a discovery that begins to happen of how to stay present, how to stay connected with myself, and stay connected and engaged with the other person at the same time. <coughs> Keeping a sense of myself and knowing where I am and knowing where the other person is, and yet not losing the presence and the connection and the dynamic that flows between the two. It's a real skill. And it's something that not many of us have the opportunity to really practice and to develop. Particularly on retreat, doing this kind of process on a silent retreat, you're coming out of the silence, speaking, meeting someone in a real 
uh, intimate contact, and then going back into the silence, spending lots of time with yourself in the silence, then coming back into the connection with the other. And in a way, you're even more sensitive than if you were in your daily life and you were doing these exercises or practices in an evening and then going back into your life, but you're going back into the silence, going back into connection with yourself. And in the silence, you develop a real sensitivity. That's what happens when you come on retreat. You become much more sensitive, sensitive to what's moving in your own mind and body and emotions. You become sensitive to others and what's happening for them. There's more of a kind of a, of, 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 a, of a real connection that happens in the silence where you know people in a different way than you would if you were socially engaged with people. There's, a, there's a, almost a deeper knowing that happens in the silence with, with people that we haven't known before. Becoming sensitive to the nature, to, to what's happening in the house, to the whole kind of um, the field we might even say the psychic field, the vibration that's actually here in this, in this community where we're established together for this time. So there's a quality of sensitivity that you may not have when you're out in your daily life. And then you come into the form of sitting across from another person, and that sensitivity is there. And then you're asked to kind of bring up some very, you know, deep and personal (laughs) responses about your experience to this person that you really don't know, maybe, very well. And a lot can happen. A lot can get stirred in that. We can start to project onto the other person what we imagine they might be thinking, what they might be feeling about us. Oh, they really think I'm being silly, or they, they probably think I'm just, you know, not connected at all, or, you know, they're really judging me, or whatever it is. And we may, it may be true, there may be a way that we're picking up something in the other person, but because of our sensitivity and because of our own habits and tendencies to go into our own imaginary realities and start to believe the things are happening that may actually not be happening because our projections on others get very strong, we can get caught up in even a way that we lose contact in some way with what's really going on. And so we have to be so careful about the way we may project our ideas about what the other person is thinking about me or how the other person is imagining me or then the own, our own kind of judgments and doubts and, you know, oh, I'm just, you know, what I say is just so stale, it's just not connected, you know, I'm not really present at all. We start to have a story about our own process. What's going on for me? let alone what's going on for the other person. And then we can get caught up in this whole imaginary idea, reality of what we think is going on. So again, you know, right here, and this is what we do, don't we? We do it so much in our relationships with others. All this speculation and assumptions about what's going on in the other. And then we can become, we can become somewhat defensive and somewhat guarded. And then that can shut down our aliveness in some way. We think that I can't take the risk. I can't take the risk to be spontaneous, to be alive here, to just speak what's really true, because 
I'm being judged or I'm judging myself or we get caught back up in that constrained or confined way of being. So much of what we're working with actually too in the inquiry, in the process when we sit with another person is can we allow all of this to arise and have some awareness, too, of the possibility that some of what I'm thinking and imagining and creating in my own mind, bringing a little bit of doubt to that particular scenario. Maybe it isn't happening quite the way that I'm thinking that it is. Maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. It's just questioning, because sometimes what we do is we get so uh, um, certain about what's moving through our mind, what we're thinking about ourselves, what we're thinking about others, and sometimes we actually don't really question that. And this is when our relationships can get very tangled. Our relationships can sometimes get quite polarized because we get stuck in these ideas. As we drop more into the trust, trusting what's happening, we actually might feel connected with some of the aliveness itself that arises from the process that we're in. Oh yeah, all this is happening in my mind, all this is happening in this dynamic together, and there's a quality of interest and curiosity about the process itself. What's going on? What's going on in my feelings, in my mind, in my understanding? And so we stay very present, we stay very current, and we stay quite trusting of that whole unfolding to see what can be discovered, what can be learned in that unfolding dynamic. In this way, there may be, might be possible that we don't shut down that feeling of aliveness that the aliveness actually arises through the interest in the whole process itself. Even when we find ourselves contracting or withdrawing or getting tight or feeling like we have to distance ourselves, the aliveness can come from being interested in that process itself. Not putting pressure on myself or not judging myself that I'm not being more spontaneous or I'm not being more uh, open. I'm not being more truthful, but actually being interested in what's happening that I can't be or that I don't want to be or that this feels scary or this feels threatening in some way. Staying right with that. In a way, we might say not overriding that present reality of what's occurring. Staying right there in that connection with ourselves. And in that connection, there is the possibility for the aliveness to return, to come back, because we haven't disengaged from the process itself. We haven't disengaged from ourself and what's happening in that process. So it's really a challenge, I think. It's a challenge for us in our practice. How do we actually feel the aliveness and the spontaneity, that, that energy in our practice, and at the same time be grounded and connected in our wisdom, in our knowing, in our awareness? In a way, both for real balance and um, 
real connection, I think both need to be there. Not to shut down the aliveness, but not to lose connection with our deepest wisdom. This is a quote from Joseph Campbell, one of the great thinkers of our century. He says, People say we are looking for meaning in life. I do not think that is what we are looking for at all. I think what we are really looking for is an experience of being alive. What we are really looking for is an experience of being alive. So how do we do that? I think think this is really one of the questions. It certainly has been a question for me. How to really feel that aliveness, but in that aliveness, in that spontaneity, not just get caught up in my old habits, in my old tendencies that I can just where I can just fall into reactivity and wanting and desire and confusion and because as I let go and as I open, that's there too. Right? It doesn't mean just because I'm spontaneous and open that I'm going to be free of my greed, hatred and delusion. So in a way, maybe what we sense into when we encourage spontaneity and aliveness, maybe what we sense into is that we need to be cautious. We need to be careful. Because we know what happens when we really let go because the ego just gets totally out there. Or it can, or we might <laughs> have had some experiences with that, particularly, you know, around our our our, our reactivity. You know, and our and our desire; those forces are so strong. You know, it's like um, tell an alcoholic to be spontane- spontaneous. You know, you can't do that because those that force, that force of addiction, is so strong that that person needs to work with um, methods of restraint and control, or that person will die. So it's not to say that there isn't good reason, there isn't good cause to have restraint in our life and to have discipline and have forms in our life that really support restraint and discipline because we need to get this ego under control. We need to get these forces under control. Otherwise, we just fall into indulgence. We fall into the extreme, that other extreme of indulgence, the extreme of the other extreme being repression and, re- and, and repression and suppression, the, and the other extreme being indulgence. And on both sides, there really isn't firm wisdom about either in either location. One is too far, in, the, the suppression is too far in one extreme, and the indulgence is too far in the other extreme. All we have to do is look around the world, look at the condition of the world at any point in history, really, and we see how the ego is out of control. Because, in some ways, the world is out of control. Sometimes it's amazing to me that we are still here, that the, that 
somebody hasn't just blown it all up already, you know, because the power, the forces of this greed and this hatred are so strong. I came across this um, article in uh, a newspaper last year. I may have read this last year, but I, but I really find this so amazing that I want to read it again. It's kind of an indication of really the force of greed and how um, uh, corporations and governments really have profit as their main goal rather than the interests of the environment or human beings. It's called, the title for this article is, The FAA Seeks to Keep Billboards from Space. The FAA is, in America is the Federal Aviation Administration. It's one of the departments in the U.S. government. The Federal Aviation Administration filed proposed regulations to ensure that it can enforce an existing law that prohibits obstruse, ob obtrusive advertising in zero gravity. So, like, this is the next thing. Objects placed in or orbit, if large enough, could be seen by people around the world for long periods of time, the FAA said. For instance, outsized billboards deployed by a space company into low Earth orbit could appear as large as the moon and be seen without a telescope, the FAA said. Big and bright advertisements also might hinder astronomers, the FAA said. Like, this is just, like, serious, you know? It's like the FAA is actually saying, why is defending their right to enforce this law? Because people want to send these these um, billboards out into space. But then the, the, the last thing that this, it says is, however, the FAA lacks the authority to enforce the existing law. This is what is called out there. <laughs> it's really out there. I mean, we will go to any extent uh, that this this. When I read that, I thought, I've never read anything quite that wild, you know, that is, is really seri seriously being considered as a way to advertise products so that we can buy so that companies can make more money. I mean, it's astounding to me. So this is a real example <laughs> of the mind out of control, out of control. So we need constraint. And in the Buddhist practice, one of the basic foundation teachings are the five precepts, is the teaching of sila, of not killing and not stealing and not engaging in sexual misconduct and, and engaging in wise speech that's not harsh, that's not false, that's not hurtful or harmful, not indulging in intoxicants that that cloud the mind, that create heedless actions. It's very wise of the Buddha to have put this in place because this is a very useful foundation for us who don't have so much control over these forces within us. We need this. And so sila is the very first practice for all practitioners in the Buddhist tradition 
to follow these five precepts so that there's some element of restraint around this potential for spontaneity that can lead to more pain and suffering. So we practice restraint. It's really one of the ways that we practice. We have forms that support this restraint. When you come on retreat, you can't just go to the refrigerator anytime you want to get something to eat. You can't, you're not just talking to everybody whenever you want, sort of discharging your emotions when they get strong. We learn lots of ways to tolerate the, the uh, energies that move through our mind and our body. And this is the discipline. This is the training that we're involved in. But what, what potentially happens as in, in the Buddhist practice for many people, and it has for many of the people that I've worked with, is again, we can go too far the other way. We start to fall too much into the extreme of suppression. We can begin to suppress our feelings and our emotions. In fact, many people in the Buddhist tradition struggle with their relationship to anger. Here's so many people having a difficult time with how to be with their anger because anger isn't expressing anger is not being a good Buddhist, right? So it gets suppressed, it gets undermined, for example. We can start to smooth things over as if there really isn't any conflict. In California and in America, there's this phrase called spiritual bypassing. It's developed, it's come in the last 10 years, and it's arisen out of this tendency for people to go too far to the other extreme of suppression. Not in indulgence, we're working with how, how not to get caught up in indulgence, but going into the suppression. And in that, we can begin to bypass so much of what we really need to be touching for real freedom, what we need to be understanding within our ego structure to really be free. When we practice letting go, we were talking about this this morning, when we practice this letting go, we can kind of slip over many experiences that we're having. Just, oh, just... Rising, passing, rising, passing, seeing the empty nature, seeing the empty nature. And in that, we can feel quite equanimous, tranquil, calm. We may begin to feel that quality of inner stillness and quiet. And this is really important. It's very necessary to contact that inner stillness. In fact, the definition, one of the definitions of equanimity is the stillness of the unmoving mind. We like that because there is a sense of such ease and tranquility when we, when we sense into the stillness of the unmoving mind. And that equanimity can become so strong that we can, we can almost have a sense that it's timeless. The stillness becomes so strong that almost nothing ever happens arising and passing, and we rest into that stillness, and it's like nothing ever happened. 
there's a teacher in our teacher council who um, uh, has a very strong sense of this, nothing ever happened, nothing ever happened, you know, a real strong sense of this timeless element. And then he adopted a child. And we, in our circle one day, we asked him, how are things going? He said, oh, nothing ever happened. And we all cracked up. It's like, yeah, right. Nothing ever happened. And then as the weeks and the months go on, we're checking in with him. How are things? Nothing ever. How's nothing ever happened? You know, your daughter, your two-year-old daughter, how's nothing ever happened? And he laughs and jokes. And, and so, I mean, clearly, something's happening when you have a two-year-old daughter. There's no way to get around that. And yet, so, so we can kind of experience this sort of sense of paradox of, of the engagement and the fullness and the aliveness of what's actually going on. But at the same time, kind of have this sense of the, of the balance or the inner stillness. But we need to be careful because equanimity really gets elevated in the Buddhist tradition. Not to have it, not to be reactive, not to feel anger. It's wrong, it's bad, not to have strong emotions, not to have uh, a lot moving through. And we can create, we can develop a, what a, a spiritual superego or a spiritual judge that says, be careful, you're getting too reactive, or you're getting too emotional, or you need to be more calm, or you need to be more still. And we can, be, we can become a little bit too cut off or detached from ourselves. And we can get pushed further into a self-image of someone who doesn't really have much going on. I'm quite steady, I'm quite balanced, I'm quite present. And yet there's a whole load of stuff that isn't really getting touched or seen or dealt with. We see this, I see this so much after working for all these years with people. This is the tendency, this is the possibility of this falling into the extreme of suppression or detachment. And the near enemy to equanimity in the text and the teachings is indifference. And we have to be so careful because equanimity, indifference can look like equanimity, but it's not equanimity. Because equanimity is an expression of the awakened mind, and it arises from the awakened mind. True equanimity is not withdrawal, and it's not indifference, but rather it's a wholehearted engagement with ourselves and with the world. We are connected. We are awake. We're not cut off from the movement of life. When we are awake, how can we be disconnected from life? I don't think that is really was, I don't think that was, that is the experience of realization. That is the experience of, of enlightenment, of, of, of an awake mind. Because there's no barriers, there's no separation, there's pure connection and engagement with life. There's no, there's no difference. There's not life, there's not me here and life out there. It's, it's all happening. It's all now present, engaged. 
So falling into indifference, this kind of quality of detachment, is a kind of denial of life itself. It is a disconnection. It may even be a kind of fear of intimacy. (coughs) Fear of intimacy, fear of engagement. And so it's another aspect to really inquire into, to pay attention to. Where am I here? Is there a way I'm pulling back? I'm not wanting to engage. I'm not wanting to feel. What parts, what aspects of my life, of my being, do I not want to know about or to engage with or to, I'd rather just kind of put it aside. We can ask ourselves these questions because it's just too easy to hide behind the tradition or the images of the tradition, the image of the Buddha who is sitting there, you know, so calm, Eyes closed, very very detached. We're supposed to be like that. Is it true? I want to challenge some of these ideas. I have a friend, another thing we were joking about, she had broken up with her boyfriend and she was in a lot of pain. She's a practitioner, a long-time practitioner, feeling all this pain. And, and we were joking because she was saying, oh, you know, really, again, so nothing really happened. You know, it's all empty. We really haven't broken up. Everything's all one anyhow. I haven't lost connection, you know. And it, it's just like, <laughs> but she, we were laughing, you know. She knew that it, it was extremely painful, and what she needed to do was really feel the pain of that. For her, in that moment, it was not empty. She was feeling what she was feeling. Maybe at another level of her being, she knew the quality of the transparency and the transiency, and that there was still the impersonal nature, but it didn't, it didn't deny that it, what she was feeling was painful. <coughs> Both are true. There was a friend of mine who had spent two years uh, living with my guru at the time, Punjiji, in his house being his attendant. And uh, with another few people who were also attending to him, and she really became very attached to him. And when it became time to leave, she was feeling all this sorrow, feeling tremendous amount of grief that she would be leaving this man who she loved so dearly and was so devoted to. And so she went to him and said, you know, I, am, I, just, I just feel so much sorrow and grief. I'm just going to miss you so much. I'm so attached to you. And he looked at her and he said, and I'm really attached to you. And it's so beautiful because here was this very wise, you know, very awake man, and you, you don't, you don't expect that response, you know. know? Oh, it's like there's nothing to be attached to, you know. There's nobody here, you know. This is all, you know, all transparent. It's all empty. It's all an illusion, you know. Get over your attachment, you know. No, his heart just opened and. I'm really attached to you, too. And in that moment, just this outpouring of true love and connection was felt. The realness, the authenticity of the meeting. So this is our dilemma. 
this has been my dilemma, you know, how to experience aliveness, engagement, connection in my life, to feel the emotions, the passions, the, the creativity, all that flows through me. And yet at the same time, be grounded and centered, connected to my wisdom and my being so that I'm not just caught up and drawn away by these strong forces of my mind. Very interesting edge for us in our practice so that we're not suppressing, pushing down the passions, the creativity. And the passion and creativity is very connected. Many people ask me, well, how do you contact your creativity in this practice? And this practice is about creativity. It's about finding those, um, the unique individual expression of our being and how that's going to manifest in this world, how we're going to make a difference in this world as an individual, as a human being. When we become alive, when we're not so limited and defined by the small sense of our ego mind, when we start to expand, when we start to become more of who we are, when we start to experience more of our capacity to express ourselves, that's where the creativity really starts to flow. Where we have so many more options available to us. So we've been introducing coming down more fully into the belly, you know. We've practiced, many of us have practiced feeling the heart and feeling the movement of the chest and being aware of the breath of the nostrils. And now coming down more into the belly, there's actually something that can be a little bit dangerous about that. Because when we feel our belly that's actually where a lot of the juices and a lot of the guts are, is in the kind of the passion and the sexuality and, you know, really some of the aliveness of our being. And we breathe down into our belly. We start to become more connected to the belly, to our center, to the wholeness of our being. And then more starts to get expressed. We start to feel more. We start to engage more with who we are as a whole being, the whole aspect of, of who we are. And so with that, we're also practicing the practices of awareness and presence and insight into the nature of this uh, uh, construction of self, the, the cultivating the arising of wisdom, of, of panya, the cultivation of samadhi, of concentration, so that we really have the ability to see more clearly in a sustained way. So all of these practices are integrated. They work together and support each other so that we can come more into the fullness of who we are, more into the totality of who we are. 
It's not that we're supposed to have these kinds of questions answered. And I think even in the tradition, in many of the spiritual traditions, we're starting to explore this question more and more as we move out of the monasteries, as we move out of the more contemplative forms, we come more into the world, and as practitioners, we're living more in the world, we're engaging as householders and lay people, we have jobs, we are in relationships, we have family, we have money issues. We're dealing with so many more things as householders, as lay people. How do we bring our practice? How do we bring our longing for solitude and stillness and contemplation and connection, meditation? How do we bring that and integrate that into our, our world of being lay people? where we're engaged in worldly activity. This is something that hasn't really been explored in the West in the way that we're exploring it now. So all of us in some way are part of this historical turning where we're being we're much we're becoming much more integrated human beings, integrating this our, our, our ability and our capacity for solitude and contemplation and deep understanding and insight into the nature of consciousness and the nature of our existence, and then coming into the world, engaging into the world, or we might reverse it, engaging in the world and going back into retreat, into contemplative situations, <coughs> and then going back out into the world. I think more and more that's what we're actually engaged in, is this moving in and out, in and out, back to ourselves and going out, back into ourselves, being nourished, being resourced, and then going back out. This is one of the things that we're exploring. We are exploring it at Spirit Rock, at our meditation center, really how to do this, how to make this integration so that we don't fall into one extreme or the other. The extreme of being having to go into the monastery or kind of into a, a contemplative seclusion or leaving that behind and going into full engagement in the world and forgetting our spiritual practices. How do we do that? We don't know yet. <laughs> We're learning together. All of us are learning. We're exploring. We're experimenting. We'll see. We'll see if it can be done. The Buddha taught the middle way. <coughs> One of the beautiful insights of the Buddha. Everything in moderation, not to fall into one extreme or the other. Right now, we're investigating this middle way, how to keep a certain aliveness without falling into indulgence or suppression. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. 